Andrew's going to make me cry. It's so great to have Andrew back in the house and to be a part of a house that really values what I do and what Steve does. And so I love this house. I love being here on Sundays. I love ministering under Pastor Andrew, Pastor Colin, Pastor Rory, Pastor Shailene. It's, it's my joy and privilege. Would you bow your heads with me in, in prayer before we begin? Lord Jesus, we love you this morning. We are so grateful for your work in our lives. And Lord, we could never, ever repay you for all you've done, but we can worship you for all eternity. And as we open your word this morning, I pray specifically that you would fill my mouth with your Holy Spirit. Would you help me not to speak anything that's not of you, but to be faithful to speak all that you give me. And would you minister to each person here in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been on a journey through the Psalms of Ascent, as you know, and this morning we come to Psalm 132, and in this Psalm, I'm going to be focusing on the dwelling place and the irony of the dwelling place. Let me begin with a story. When Steve and I were raising our four children, three of them and their spouses and their kids attend here. One is still up in Denver. When we were raising our kids, Steve was a pastor. And so often he would go out for prayer walks. And on this particular Saturday, he said, Beck, I'm going to go to spend a few hours before the Lord on a prayer walk. So I was like, great. Well, what you need to know about Steve is he is a huge wildlife fan. He grew up in Africa with all manner of animals around him, and he loves wildlife. So he went to a wildlife sanctuary for his prayer time. He came back a few hours later, and he came in the house excited, and he said, Beck, you need to come out to the garage and see what I brought home. And I thought, uh-oh. And we, he opened the door of the garage, and there stood this bird about this high. And I'm like, Why? And we already had four kids and a dog. Why do we need a bird? And he's like, well, you know, I came out of the wildlife sanctuary. I was standing in the parking lot, and this bird was standing there smiling at me. So he said, I said to the bird, would you like to come home with me? And he opened the back door of our car, and the bird jumped in. So he's like, I thought this would be good for the kids. You know, we'll have a visiting bird. And I'm like, really? I'm like, this is insane. Anyway, he calls the kids out, and um, the two oldest are like, wow, Dad, that's a little weird. You know, the two youngest are enthralled with the bird. You know, Carrie, who was leading worship this morning, she was about two or three at the time, and she's like, big bird. And finally, Steve feels understood, like somebody understood his love for this bird. Anyway, he keeps the bird in the garage, and I'm going to bed that night thinking, Lord, really? Are we going to have a bird in our garage? I don't really want this bird out there. And so the next morning we wake up and Steve goes to give the bird water and the bird is gone. 
And I was like, thank you, Jesus. You have heard my prayers once again. Later that day, after Steve preaches, I don't know, two or three sermons, whatever he was preaching at that time, he comes home, he takes a Sunday afternoon nap, he's having a cup of coffee and reading the newspaper. And in the newspaper, it says, thousand acre swamp grouse missing. If you see this friendly bird, don't talk to him because he's very friendly and we need him to stay in the sanctuary, the wildlife sanctuary. And Steve goes, Beck, what are we going to do? And I said, this part of we is going to do nothing because I didn't invite the bird home. But Steve had, and so to this day, we pray that that rare grouse made it back to his dwelling place. I am reminded of that story because you and I are on a journey of ascent to the dwelling place of the Most High God. And this is an amazing journey. Turn with me to Psalm 132. And it begins a little different than the rest of the Psalms of Ascent. The writer begins by saying, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. Now, I need to be clear. This isn't David writing this. He's not saying, okay, Lord, remember me and all my self-denial. I mean, when you got me, you really got a bargain. You know, this is not David saying that. This is his son, likely Solomon, reflecting on David's life and writing about his father. This would be like our son, JJ, who many of you know, saying, Lord, remember the amazing feats of Steve Harling. Remember his passion for you and, you know, his passion for wildlife. I mean, this is like that. And so Solomon writes, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. And then he goes on to say, he swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. And I want you to understand the vow that David made. David's entire life was wrapped up in the presence of God. In Psalm 27, David writes, one thing have I asked. One thing do I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and behold the beauty of your presence. David was passionate about the presence of God. And so what's happening in this psalm later, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because it is a bit long, but it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, during David's life, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. And so when David writes, we found you in the fields of Jehar, which I'm probably massacring how you say that, that's near Bethlehem. And so the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. It had the budding rod of Aaron. It had a small jar of manna to remind the people of Israel that God had provided. His provision went on and on. And finally, it had the Ten Commandments. And so they would keep 
the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And if you read through 2 Samuel 6 and 7, we find this amazing story where David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, where it belongs. And so he goes over there, he gets the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the first time, it, there, it was a little rough because the oxen carrying the cart stumbled and a man reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant, and God struck him dead. Now that seems a little harsh to us, but God's point was, my presence is holy. So David leaves the Ark there, because he's kind of mad at God at that point. And he's like, I don't know that I want the Ark in Jerusalem now. However, where he leaves it, he discovers that their blessing of the Lord is on that place. And so he goes back three months later, gets the Ark, brings it back to Jerusalem, and there's dancing and celebration because of the presence of the Lord. Soon after that, David goes before the Lord, and he talks to Nathan, and he says, I am making an oath. I live in a beautiful palace. I am going to create and form and make a tabernacle for the Lord. I'm going to create a sanctuary for the Lord. I'm going to build this magnificent, beautiful building where the ark of the Lord can rest. And Nathan says, that's a good idea. And then Nathan goes and seeks the Lord, comes back to David, and he says, actually, God doesn't want you to do that. He's going to have your son do that. I actually love that passage. We don't have time to go into it, but I love David's response there. Because when God tells him no, the scripture says, David sat down before the Lord. He simply sat down and worshiped the Lord. When God tells us no, that's not always our first response, is it? But David sat before the Lord and worshiped him in spite of the fact that he was not going to be the one to build the tabernacle. The second half of Psalm 132 is really God's promise to David. Because just like David made an oath to God, God makes a promise to David. And again, you can read about that promise in 2 Samuel 7. But here it says that the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. And what is amazing about this oath and this promise of God is that the answer to David's request went exceedingly abundantly beyond all David could imagine. Because God is not promising him just that Solomon is going to sit on the throne. God is promising that the Messiah the anointed one, the king of kings, will come from David's line, and he will sit on an eternal throne. I don't know about you, but that just gives me goosebumps, because sometimes when we're pleading with the Lord for an answer, and we feel like God is not hearing, God sometimes surprises us by giving us an answer that goes exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. And so Jesus comes as the promised one who will sit on David's throne. And then in John 2, Jesus stands in the temple and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And there's kind of a lot of shock 
when he stands up and says that. People are a little ticked and edgy, like what? Is he going to destroy our beautiful temple? And then claiming he can rebuild it in three days? That's ridiculous. But Jesus was giving us a hint as to what was coming. You see, Jesus is now the sanctuary. Jesus himself is our dwelling place. But the irony of the dwelling place is that it gets better than that. The irony is that we now are his dwelling place. Because after Jesus dies and is resurrected, Peter stands up and says, this Jesus is the one who was prophesied about in Psalm 132. And soon after that, Stephen stands up and he says, God's presence will no longer just dwell in houses made by man. It will dwell in people. Does that not excite you? The living God, the one who put the planets in place, the one who formed Pike's Peace, Peak, the one who formed your children in the womb, he now lives in you. Paul said it this way. Paul said, do you not know that your body is the sanctuary of the living God, the place where God's presence dwells? Now, I don't know about you, but you might be thinking, well, Becky, my sanctuary is not doing too good. Hey, I've had those days too. You know, you look in the mirror and you think, oh man, the sanctuary needs a little work. But it is the dwelling place of God. And Thomas Kelly is one of my favorite authors. I don't want to massacre this, so I'm going to read it off the screen here. Thomas Kelly was a Quaker, and he said, deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a holy place, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we may continuously return. And then later in his writings, Thomas talks about learning to live life on two levels. That's how we experience the presence of God. So on one level, you might be helping with homework. On another level, there's this conversation going on between you and the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you. It, on one level, you might be working at your job or playing pickleball. At another level, you are communing with the Holy God because he lives and dwells in you. Remember, Jesus said to his friends, it's actually better for you if I go away because when I go away, the comforter will come, and he will be with you, and he will be in you. The presence of holy God now lives and dwells in you. You are now the sanctuary of the living God. And so our lives are to be this continual journey of worship. And, and that's where it gets a little wonky for us, because we think, well, you know, I don't really feel like waking up this morning and worshiping, and yet our entire Higher life is to be this journey of ascent where we're, we are worshiping the living God. What gets in the way of us experiencing the presence of God? I think there are a lot of things. You know, sometimes it's deep sorrow and pain, and we want to feel God's presence, but we can't find him. 
He's, na- he's there. We know he's there, but we're not experiencing it. At other times, it's the chatter in our own souls. Out of all of them, I probably relate the most to this. Friedrich, <laughs> Frederick, so Pastor Andrew and, and my husband Steve both coached me before between the services on how to say this name. I know this guy. I'm just going to massacre his name. Beekner, is that correct? Okay, I did it. Yay. Anyway, he said what deadens us most to God's presence within us, I think, is the inner dialogue that we are continuously engaged in with ourselves. The endless chatter of our human souls. I relate to this one. I remember a dark season in my life where I sat in a therapist's office and uh, she got really quiet. And then she said these words to me. She said, you know, I don't know how you do it with your brain. I'm glad I don't have your brain. Because she's like, you must have like 10,000 thoughts per second. And I would not be able to manage that. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not sure that's supposed to be encouraging. But I'm having trouble managing it too. This is why I'm here. (laughs) But she was saying, you know, this constant chatter. You know, so this morning, I know I'm preaching. I have everything ready. I go to the car. I arrive here. I turn, no joke, this happened this morning. I turn to the front seat to get my Bible, and it's not there. I've never done that in all the years I've spoken to different places. I'm like, oh my word, I left my Bible on the kitchen counter. So I'm frantically calling my husband, Steve, who thankfully picks up his phone and brings my Bible with my notes. It's this constant chatter in our head, you know? We have a million thoughts, and we're focused in those thoughts. And because of that, we sometimes can't experience God's presence the way we're designed to. So... What do we do about experiencing God's presence? I want to give you some tips that have worked for me. I, w- I want you to hear me. These are, this is not a solution. This is not like A plus B equals C. These are practices that have helped me in my journey to connect with God. And I believe that they will help you as well because it is truly a journey in a long direction. Life is long and it's hard and we are on a journey of holy ascent to the dwelling place of the living God. And so when you can't feel God's presence, I first want to remind you to remember, remember, We have short-term memory loss sometimes, don't we? You know, we think, oh, today's problems are so bad. And we forget that just yesterday, God met our need in some miraculous way. I remember a very dark season in Steve in my life. Steve had been called to be the pastor of a huge church in California. The church was very divided when we stepped in. Meanwhile... I had just come off of my fourth surgery for cancer, and, um, and the doctors were saying, well, we may have found more, so we need another surgery. Honestly, I had like seven surgeries in five years. I, they, I was under so much anesthesia that at times the kids would go like this, mom, the lights are on, but nobody's home. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'm not here. I don't know 
know where I am, but it's not here. Anyway, so we were walking through that. At the same time, I was walking through some deep inner healing for trauma from my childhood that I had never dealt with. And I just remember there was one day where, you know, all these threatening letters were coming to our home. There were death threats. There were all these different things. And I just remember laying face down on the carpet in our home in California. And I remember saying, Lord Jesus, I have nothing. I have known you since I was a child. But I don't feel you right now. I don't feel like you're behaving like the God I used to serve. I need you to show me who you really are. Because I've got nothing. And I was just weeping in front of the Lord. Like, Lord, I need you to show up. The next day, I think it was the next day, we got an email from our 18-year-old son who was across the United States at college. And he said, Dad, I know this is a dark season. And he's like, Dad, don't ever forget the miracles that God has done. Remember what he's done in the past so that you can take the next step. I remember how encouraging that email from our son was. I remember thinking, that's true. We've got to remember how God moved in the past. Because today, it, I feel empty, but I have seen him move in the past in remarkable ways. Remember when it's all falling apart. The second practice that I have developed when I don't feel the presence of God, is to unleash the power of praise. Praising God not only shifts the thoughts in our brains, but it shifts the atmosphere. Now, i got to tell you the story behind this. Uh, my dear mentor, Linda Dillow, is here in the audience today. And at a time where everything was falling apart, I remember calling Linda, and we didn't live in the same state at that time. And I said, well, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. And, um, you know, she said she was sorry and all that. But then she gave me the most bizarre challenge I've ever been given in my life. She said, Becky, before you even open the Word of God, for the next five days, I want you to praise God. And I remember thinking, this is bizarre. I hardly feel like jumping up and down saying, hallelujah, I've got cancer. You know, this is awesome. She said, well, I'm not asking you to thank God for cancer. I'm asking you to praise God for who he is above the cancer. And, and so I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. Either way, I'm facing this massive surgery in 10 days. And we were still very much in the thick of raising kids. And so the first morning, I got down on my knees, and I remember distinctly praying, Lord, I'm here to worship you for 20 minutes and praise you. And I don't know how I'm going to do that. But if you will fill me with your spirit, I'm going to do it. And so because I'm slightly obsessive-compulsive, I began to go through the alphabet. You know, Lord, you are awesome. You are the blessed controller of all things. You are the bread of life. You are compassionate. You're my deliverer. You're eternal. You're faithful. And on and on I went. And a strange thing began to happen. I began to experience 
the presence of God in ways I had never experienced before. It's not like God moved closer to me. It's that the Holy Spirit opened my ears and my mind to experience his presence. It's not like praising God is some magic pill, but praising God as we praise him, the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith so that we actually believe the things we're praising him for. And so when you don't feel God's presence, may I challenge you? Get on your knees. Turn on worship music. Begin to praise God for who he is. I have kept that practice for the last 23 years. The third tip that I have for you is to create sacred rhythms and spaces where you will experience the presence of God. You know, I, I was looking back on Steve in my life, and there are some practices we've done in every season of our marriage. I mean, it, it, some people might call it like, I don't know, rote or ritualistic or legalistic or whatever. For us, they've worked. Every morning, each of us as individuals meet with God. You know, we're excited to meet with him. It's a delight to meet with him. Some people have called this spiritual disciplines, and I actually hate that term because when I personally think of spiritual disciplines, I think of the gym, you know. And I, I was telling Steve, like, uh, just this week, that, uh, you know, about a month ago, I was, asked, I was having a conversation with God, and Steve said, well, tell me about it. And I said, well, you know, I was asking him for more energy, you know, to keep up with deadlines and speaking and all these things that I love to do. And he said, well, what did God answer? And I heard, go to the gym. And I was like, really? Don't you have a different word for me, Lord? I mean, I really didn't want to go to the gym in all honesty, but that's the answer I heard. That's a spiritual discipline to me. Meeting with Jesus in the morning is a delight because he's the one that loves me more than anyone. He's the one that understands me. He's the one that understands all this mixed up stuff that we sometimes feel, and yet his love is overwhelming. Another practice we have had in our marriage is to develop sacred spaces where we walk together and pray. You know, in our first church, little country church, we would walk by the covered bridge and by the river, and we would pray together. We would pray for what God wanted to do in our lives, in our marriage, through our ministries. In Sudan, when we lived in Khartoum, Sudan, East Africa, we would walk by the Nile River, and we would Praise God that he was there with us through this wild journey. It, you know, each place God has provided a sacred space for us as a couple. Even now, we go out and we hike. We pray over all four kids, all four spouses, all 14 grandchildren. We pray for the staff here at New Life East. We pray for what God is doing in each of our respective ministries. And it has not only helped us to experience the presence of God, it's kept us on the same page in our marriage. The fourth principle is to lean into your community. You know how privileged you are to be part of a body like this one, a body that is not judgmental, a body where when you're a mess, you can show up a mess and just say, I'm a mess today. I've got no faith or I've 
doubting God's presence. I guarantee you, if you open up like that to other people, you're not going to get shamed. People are going to gather around you and pray and say, let me believe on your behalf. You know, community is a beautiful gift with God. He has designed us for community with himself, intimacy with him, and connection with other believers. And so, you know, when you're hearing this message and you're thinking, well, I'm the sanctuary of the living God, I can just worship at home in my jammies with my coffee and watch online on Sunday. Hey, I get it. There are some Sundays I might want to worship in my jammies at home. But There is this explosive experience of God's presence when we gather. Sometimes when I'm here on Sunday morning and and we're worshiping, I realize in that moment that hours before people on the East Coast have worshipped and hours before that people in Europe and all through the Horn of Africa have worshipped and hours before that people in India and Malaysia and in China and in Iran have worshipped and I realize that there is this amazing crescendo of worship that goes round the world and so we need your voice. Come and worship with us. You might come and you might be on the top of the world. I might come and I might be in the depths. My worship might be my weeping. Your worship might be celebratory. It doesn't matter. We need your voice because together, collectively, there is this amazing crescendo to heaven and it echoes around just like it does in the heavenlies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as we We are worshiping down here. They are worshiping up there. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that crescendo of worship to stop. We need each other in the body of Christ. Finally, we need to rediscover the beauty of Jesus. Early this morning when I was on my knees worshiping, I was listening to Lindy Kofer's song, Look to the Lamb. And I I was just thinking, like, this is what it's all about. This is why we do what we do. This is why I write books. Uh, Trust me, I don't write books to get rich. It doesn't happen. Um, This is why we speak. This is why Steve travels around to crazy places around the globe because it's about Jesus. I believe more than ever that we are living in one of the most urgent hours in history. I I believe things are changing faster than any of us are even aware of. And, And I want to call the church back to the centrality of Jesus because without Jesus, we've got nothing. And so we can get caught up. I I am very aware that we are on the brink of another political year here in America. You know what? Keep your eyes off the news. Maybe get off of social media. And let's get back to Jesus. Because he is why we do what we do. And as we rediscover Jesus, as we come humbly before the Lamb, we're reawakened to the presence of his Spirit in us. And as we're there and we realize, everything that Jesus has done for us, how he went to the cross, how he bled for us, how he died and resurrected for us, we are aware that we are to join him in what he's doing around the world. 
And so let's get back to Jesus. During those dark years of my life, I just remember reading through the Gospels every day for four years. I was like, Lord, I need to come back to Jesus. And so every day for four years, I was reading through the Gospels. Jesus, show me who you really are. That might be your prayer this morning. We're going to wind down, and in a minute, Pastor Andrew is going to come and lead us in communion. And I, my encouragement to you, I know some of you have walked through hellish circumstances in the last year. I think of some of you who have lost children. I think of some of you who are battling cancer. I think of some of you who have, probably have lost jobs, some of you whose marriages are falling apart. We need to get back to Jesus. He wants us to know his presence. And one of the ways that we know his presence is when we come to the table of the Lord. I want to just pray. And if you're in a place where you're like, you know what, I just am not really feeling God's presence, and I really need to feel God's presence, I want you to look at me while I pray. And I will be praying for you in my heart. So everybody else, just bow your heads, close your eyes. If you need the presence of the Lord more deeply, look at me. And I will pray for you. I see some of your eyes around the room. I see some of you. I see some of you. I see you. Lord Jesus, our hearts are just enthralled with you. This journey called life is a really long one, and yet it's a wonderful journey because when we look back, we can see your faithfulness. We can see that you've been with us every step of the way, and we want to lean into you, and we want to experience your presence even more than we have. And so, Lord Jesus, we worship you, we honor you, and as we come to the communion table, help us to remember to look to the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.